The revolution is here. A movement of people free to live, work, and choose. We won't tell you what to think. We just demand that you think for yourself. This is Kibbe on Liberty. So um, we were just talking about Bernie Sanders and uh, um, Mike Lee, I believe, um, uh, chaired a hearing. Mike, no, it was Rand Paul. Rand Paul chaired a hearing a few years back about authorization of, for use of military force. And Bernie gave this speech. I almost switched teams and became a Bernie bro on the spot. So I'm, I'm admitting that publicly. But uh, And this is uh, Reardon, who loves to participate, apparently. This is his new thing. Um, and, and he is a non-interventionist realist as well, um, as his name would apply. Hey, come over here. Why are you doing this to our guests now? Um, but hey, uh, welcome, Dan. <laughs> Thank you for having you me on. See, that. You get the full. You get the full yeah. welcome. Why don't you just lay down, buddy? Come here. Um, so you haven't been on the show before, and I'm definitely um, wanting to give my viewers a chance to understand different perspectives, uh, specifically now on Ukraine, but but generally on on foreign policy. And, and you're sort of at the nexus of foreign policy realism. Before we get into that, just, just give, us a, give us a background on who you are, your, your service, and, and how you got involved in policy. Sure, so um, I grew up in Arizona. Uh, after high school, I joined the United States Marine Corps, and this was in 2005. And so it was in the middle of the Iraq and Afghanistan wars, and you know, I was actually briefly going to college and, and I was kind of burned out on school and I'd always had an interest in joining the military. So I, I frankly dropped out, dropped out of college after six weeks and, and joined the Marine Corps. And I, uh, <laughs> it's hard my, to, my it's girls, hard to be by serious. the way, are going to be jealous that I got to pet the cat. Yeah. Um, he's fine. But, uh, what could he do wrong? Yeah. But, but anyways, yeah. So I enlisted in the Marine Corps and enlisted as a rifleman, an 0311, which is our MOS designator. And uh, my first two years of the Marine Corps, um, I was part of what was called the Yankee White Program, which is the presidential support program for the Marine Corps. And this is the program that sends Marines to um, the White House and Camp David and then the White House Communications Agency. And I, I wound up going to Camp David for almost two years. I was part of the security element up there. It was a great duty station. I, I had a, a great time. President Bush was the president at the time. Um, and after my two years were up, I went out to 2nd Battalion 1st Marines in Camp Horno, Camp Pendleton in Southern California. And with them, I did a workup, about six months of, of really intense training, really good training. And then I uh, deployed to Iraq for about eight months towards the end of 2008, beginning 2009. And I was there till the summer of, of 2009. And this was an interesting point in the war. It was at the tail end of the surge, and it was at the beginning of the Obama administration. And there was something called the Status of Forces Agreement uh, that was going into effect. And this was supposed to lay the groundwork for a American withdrawal from Iraq, which uh, mostly occurred two years later uh, in 2011. Uh, but then you had ISIS come back and Americans went back in in force and they remain in Iraq today. Um, after I got out of the Marine Corps in 2009, I went back to school in Arizona. I finished up my degree and uh, I started working for a member of Congress. And I originally started working on veterans issues in the district office, helping constituents who were having problems with the Department of Veterans Affairs, which, by the way, if you want the best example 
of the failures of big government, you just look at the Department of Veterans Affairs. It's a perfect example of why universal health care doesn't work, what happens when you yet when you let uh, public sector unions write the HR rules for a government organization. And it also demonstrates how more money often equals more problems. Yeah. And so that that was a really big eye opener for me uh, about how a lot of veterans were struggling to get the care and benefits that they earned. And I think that that's a key thing is that these were benefits that were earned as part of a contract that they made with the American people to volunteer to serve right. other country, right. to put their lives on the line. And we weren't upholding that contract. And I also uh, started helping constituents um, with issues of Department of Defense. And that was a real learning experience for me. And I was with that office for two years and I learned a lot. And uh, after two years, I moved over to uh, an organization called Concerned Veterans for America, which is a veterans grassroots advocacy organization. And it's part of what's called the Stand Together community. And I've been part of that community now for uh, a little over eight years. Okay, and and I know that uh, um, you have been an outspoken advocate for basically veterans' choice when it comes to to healthcare. Why why do they have to go to these horrible facilities that that really don't deliver the care they need? Why can't they just shop around like uh, more like the rest of us can? Is that a fair characterization? Yeah, absolutely. And I have to say that that you know probably my my proudest professional accomplishment was working um, during the Trump administration to help pass some really substantial reforms to the Department of Veterans Affairs, the, the VA Mission Act, the VA Accountability Act, which really have the potential, if they're properly implemented over the next few years, to transform that department. Key word, key phrase, though, is if properly implemented. And our belief is, is that if you chose to serve your country, you should be able to choose your doctor. And for a lot of veterans, you know, to be perfectly honest, VA care is good for them. And the majority of veterans want to have the VA option. But that's the key thing. They want it as an option, not the only option. And for, for many veterans who live in rural areas or areas where there isn't a good VA hospital, um, for them, they, they not only want a choice, they need a choice yeah. uh, to go to the private sector. And, and so for us, it's common sense. It's what the Department of Defense does with the healthcare program. It's what uh, most private uh, health programs have is you have different options. I mean, our, our healthcare system has a lot of challenges, but at least in most cases, people have multiple options. And that is something that veterans did not have for a long time. Yeah, it's, it's outrageous. And, and you've uh, alluded to the vested interests that sort of feed off of a system that you spend more and more, but it, it doesn't get better. Um, how did you um, go from serving your country to being skeptical of, um, I'll call it sort of ambitious nation building sort of foreign policy where we, we get um, more and more, it seems like um, both Republicans and Democrats can lean towards regime change and and thinking that we can sort of airdrop the American system of democracy onto other countries and think that that somehow is culturally going to stick. What, what was your wake up point where you're like, you know what, this seems seems wrong? So when I was in Iraq, um, it was at the tail end of the surge. And being in the country at the time, you could kind of be like, OK, 
this may work. At, at, at the time, there was a term being used called Iraq good enough, meaning that we had really lowered expectations for the country and, and acknowledged that Iraq was not going to be a Jeffersonian democracy. And, and frankly, we were looking the other way on some bad stuff with the, with the Iraqi central government. We were essentially paying off um, our former op opponents, the, the insurgents. Um, there were Iraqi cops in our area of operations who at one point were probably fighting Marines, including Marines in, in my unit on past deployments in places like Fallujah and Ramadi. Uh, the brother of the police chief in our region was the, the chief, he, he was a chief insurgent. And so essentially, we, one of the reasons the surge was successful, which I learned later, was because we were paying people not to fight. Yeah. Leaving Iraq um, and, and starting school, um, I had uh, some downtime and I read a lot about how we got into the war, the failures early on, and kind of learned about how, in essence, we were lied into, into war and that, that the, the, the case for war rested on not just faulty intelligence or myths about the threat that Saddam Hussein posed, but this ideology that... Um, America is made safer by imposing democracy on countries where it didn't exist. And it completely ignored the history of these countries, the cultures of these countries, and it was driven by hubris and arrogance. And it cost the United States immensely, and it cost the people of Iraq and the Middle East immensely as well, too. But what really hammered it home for me was, I alluded earlier about what happened with ISIS, was is that in 2014, um, Almost every city that I served in was under the control of ISIS. And it just demonstrated to me that we were never going to be able to create a, a functioning system there that was going to be able to sustain the type of free society that you and I um, believe is, is good for people. So that, that they just culturally, um, historically, what we were trying to impose on them in a top-down manner was only making their lives worse and in, in, and in a lot of ways fueling the growth of ISIS. Most of ISIS's leaders, including, I believe, the current one, were actually radicalized and formed their initial infrastructure in American prisons in, in, in Iraq. I, I think it's, it's extreme to say that we created ISIS, but we created the conditions for ISIS. And for me, that really hammered home how this approach to nation building was not making America safer, and it wasn't making the world safer. And we're losing our men and women. Absolutely. It, the, the costs are just horrendous. And I think, I think this is very important. We lost over 4,500 American service members um, in, in Iraq from uh, combat and, and non-combat related reasons. Tens of thousands more were wounded, but that's not really the true cost. You had hundreds of thousands more who have service-related uh, disabilities from their service in Iraq, which means that, you know, it was incurred from jumping in and out of trucks with heavy armor, from burn pits, from, uh, you know, working in, in the heat and around loud machinery all day. I mean, some of that is just naturally going to occur in military service, but, but a lot of it was because of the conditions of the deployments. You had mental health issues that became very, very um, widespread among that community. And, you know, unfortunately, you had 
many suicides. And, you know, one story I like to tell to kind of hammer home the cost of these um, conflicts is about a, I'm not going to name his name, but about one of the best Marines in my platoon is he was a machine gunner and he would stand up in a turret sometimes for 12, 14 hours a day and jumping in and out of a Humvee or an MRAP, he sustained some injuries, uh, mainly to his knees and to his back. And he went to the VA and the VA um, at one point loaded him up with painkillers. And at, at one point they cut him off and he had developed an addiction. One thing led to another, uh, eventually developed a, an addiction to heroin and committed a crime and had to spend five years in, in prison as a result. Now, he is ultimately responsible for his actions, but I think that it's safe to say that in some ways he was a casualty of the Iraq war. Yeah. And there are tens of thousands of veterans just like him. Yeah. And I tell that story because the, the top line numbers often don't tell the, the whole story about the cost of these conflicts. There's, there seems to be a cycle in politics where um, um, a plurality or even a majority of the American people um, early on in a conflict support the cause as righteous and they're all in. But as the, the costs of that foreign policy decision are revealed, people get more and more skeptical of why are we there? Why did, why did we go? I think that's happening in, uh, on Ukraine right now. Um, but before we get into Ukraine, I wanted to ask you quickly. I, so we had uh, Kelly Vlahos and Matt Purple on the show, um, right? Like just days after um, the Biden administration pulled out of Afghanistan, and we were we were struggling with uh, you know everyone wants everything to be a binary choice now. In my own perspective, and I think the perspective of all of us at the time was good for him for actually keeping his word and getting out. But man. That's a shit show. Like, can, can you agree on both of those things at the same time? What was your perspective on getting out of Afghanistan? I, I, I kind of like how you set this up. And, and by the way, Kelly and Matt are fantastic. Um, uh, you should definitely follow their work on foreign policy. Um, so I think that, that, that Biden made the right decision to follow through with the withdrawal that President Trump started. I think both President Trump and President Biden deserve credit for resisting pressure not to withdraw and to basically keep muddling along. Um, you know, at the end of the day, there was no viable alternative to, to withdrawal. The alternative they were offering was essentially to keep losing slowly. Yeah. You know, President Trump got essentially backed into a corner uh, and his national security staff pressured him to surge into Afghanistan. And he did a, a, a mini surge and you increase the level of bombing in the country to record levels. Like we were bombing the crap out of that country. Record levels of ordnance were being dropped. In those two years before the peace talks that Trump initiated with Ambassador Khalilzad, the Taliban actually were gaining ground. Is that they were slowly strangling these major cities and slowly taking over these districts, despite all this ordnance we were dropping, despite all the money we were spending. And despite the fact that we had put in uh, essentially three or 4,000 more troops, including some highly trained special operations units. And ultimately, that was because the Afghan government that we had created was so weak and so ineffectual and for most Afghans was not a viable alternative to the Taliban. So President Trump was right to have Bashar Khalilzad negotiate a diplomatic solution, a, a, a 
create a path to withdrawal and say, look, America is leaving and is now up to the Afghanistan, the people of Afghanistan to take control of their destiny. And when President Biden was confronted with the option whether or not to follow through with that, he chose to withdraw. And I think he made the right decision. All that said, though, there there is, I think, an appropriate level of criticism uh, about how that withdrawal was conducted. And one thing I will say is, is that a lot of the people that were responsible for conducting the withdrawal were also responsible for a lot of the failures in the 20 year war, in particular, General Milley. General Milley is all over the Afghanistan papers, which if your viewers don't know, those were a series of documents unearthed by a Washington Post reporter, released mostly through FOIA. And these were after action reports and interviews done. And he documents how when General Milley was the deputy commander of U.S. forces in Afghanistan, he repeatedly lied about uh, how effective they were. So this is a guy that at various levels mismanaged the war. And now he's executing the withdrawal. And so I think it shouldn't surprise us that, that yes, that he, and to be fair, he wasn't executing it, but as chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, he was responsible for the advice and planning of parts of it. I, I, I don't think we should be surprised that there was, you know, some of those failures there. Same thing with, with uh, Anthony Blinken. He was um, in senior national security roles in the Obama administration when they decided to surge. Uh, he was a, a senior staffer on the Senate Foreign Relations Committee during the early years of the war. So he had been involved in helping to craft and implement a lot of the failed policies. So it, it should be of no surprise that those individuals would mismanage the withdrawal. And I think it's very unfortunate that Biden hasn't held them accountable. I think that there was justification to say, particularly with General Milley, like, look, um, he was a chief military advisor. He, as the chairman of Joint Chiefs of Staff, uh, had a planning responsibility. And because of his behavior, uh, both during my administration and the Trump administration on this issue, where there was evidence that the General Milley was trying to undermine President Trump's efforts to withdraw, I've requested his um, resignation and I'm holding him accountable. And Matt, that would have sent an important message to the military and to the foreign policy establishment that going forward, you're not going to escape accountability uh, for continued failures in American foreign policy. But I think President Biden has missed his chance on that. Yeah, you used the word hubris earlier. And, and I feel like this is an important lesson, both for progressives and conservatives who support these more ambitious foreign policy goals. They're, you inevitably have those same bureaucratic incentives um, to sort of you know, pad your own budgets and, and maybe cover up your failures and paper them over, uh, pay them off. Um, but you also have like a knowledge problem. Like yeah. you did, it, it's, I described it to Thomas Massey as, as sort of a form of central planning where we airdrop into a country. And, and by the way, our experts cycle out every, you know, six months to two years. Yep. So, so as there is finally some institutional learning about the local culture and all that, those guys go away, you bring in a new set of guys and so they, they don't know nearly enough to, to reorganize um, Afghan society or Iraqi society. And, and you know, one of, the, one of the things that's sort of gobsmackingly amazing to me is how well we armed our enemy in Afghanistan in the way we left. I mean, they're, they're one of the best armed forces in the world right now. Yeah, I think the, the way that we equipped 
the Afghan National Army was the best, the most they can strive is completely insane. Um, and we armed them the way they did because of, you brought up, the, the, you know, you mentioned incentives because there are domestic political incentives to equip them with American arms, yep. American made Blackhawks, um, Belgian designed, but American made M16s and machine guns, and then all sorts of other armor and, and Humvees and, and things like that. Um, you know, I'm a big gun guy, and, and obviously being in the Marine Corps, you know, I, I learned a lot about firearms. And the M16, which we equip an Afghan National Army with, is a great rifle, but it is more complex than an AK-47, and it takes longer to train somebody on an, a, on an M16. It's harder to maintain than an AK-47. And we were trying to train um, mostly illiterate, in, in some cases enumerative, meaning that, that some of these soldiers couldn't even count past 10 how to use a sighting system on an M16, use a, a certain types of optics and the machine guns when the better route to take would have been to arm them with Soviet block weapons, which most of them had in some cases grown up with. But because of the incentives that we had here domestically, there was pressure for the United States to build an army in our image. And this kind of goes back to the whole whole concept of imposing our uh, our vision of a government on other people. Look, I, I think you and I would agree that our the, the, the vision of a government that our founding fathers have is the best in the world. It is, I, I think, fair to say superior to every other form of government in the world. But that doesn't mean that it's best for everybody at any given time, and nor should it be imposed on them. Yeah. And the same kind of concept applies to our militaries. We have, I still think, the best military in the world. But that doesn't mean you can replicate it in other countries. And as a result, the Afghan National Army was less effective. They were more reliant on our outside support and contractors. And that made them less effective in the final months of the war. And now the Taliban has a lot of that gear and equipment. Now, I do think they're going to have a hard time maintaining it. I do think that they're going to be less effective in using it. But nonetheless, they, they now have, you know, $80 billion worth. Well, that, that's not the complete number, but tens of billions of dollars worth of our gear. The other part of that $80 billion was salaries paid to the Afghan National Army. But they have tens of billions of dollars yeah. now worth of military equipment. I, I think about uh, all of the weapons that we're pouring into Ukraine right now. And I, I, I don't know exactly how we're doing it. You probably do. But let, let's pivot to where we are today. Um, it's been 20-something days since Putin invaded Ukraine. Something like that. It's been, I think, today is a, exactly a month as we're recording okay. this. Okay. And um, it, I, uh, one of the narratives that seems obviously true is that, that Putin perhaps miscalculated um, how the Ukrainian people would react to, to his invasion. Um, I've, read, I've read plenty. And I, by the way, I'm skeptical of everything because there's should so, be. so much propaganda on all sides. Um, the Ukrainian government's incredibly capable propagandists, and, and that's part of war. But yeah. those of us as third parties should be skeptical of everything. So what's... Um, What's going on and um, the, this whole conversation about whether or not these former Soviet bloc countries should be part of NATO, there's a history there that right. I think very few Americans appreciate. 
Yeah, I think that, you know, first off, I think that it's important to state that regardless of what role the issue of NATO expansion played in creating conditions for Russia's invasion, that the Russian invasion of, of Ukraine is fundamentally immoral and unjustified. There, there's no reason that Russia should have undertaken that action. It was an offensive war of aggression, period, full stop. It's, but, funny, it's funny that we have to reiterate yeah. the fact that we think that Putin is wrong. Yes. He's a bad guy. He's an evil guy. He's a thug. Right. Um, but, but that doesn't mean that you should not have a conversation about how we got to this point. And I think that 30 years of American policy towards Eastern Europe and towards Ukraine failed to deter Russia. And here's the more important point is the people of Ukraine are paying the price for it. Mm -hmm. And you know, I just got to say a, a is devastating that, price. Yeah. yeah. And I just got to say is that listening to the conversation here in Washington, D.C. is it really unsettles me because there are so many people in this town that want to fight this war to the last Ukrainian. And I think that that they are taking out a lot of their angst and and wanting to see Ukraine do certain things that isn't in the United States interest nor in the interest of Ukraine. Now, on the, on the issue of NATO specifically, so you have to go back to, to 1989 and 1991 when the uh, Soviet Union was collapsing and when the Warsaw Pact you know, ceased to exist. And there's this question of what do we do with NATO now? Can you take me seriously right now? Yeah, yeah I, think I, I think I can. Again, my girls are going to be jealous I got to play with the cat. But uh, you, you have to go back to the purpose of NATO was to build a collective security alliance to determine to turn and defend against the Soviet Union and the Warsaw Pact. And Russia is not the Soviet Union. Russia is not in charge of a global communist empire with outposts around the world. They don't have the same military power. They don't have the same economic power from that alliance. They don't have an, an ideology like communism that binds them together with other nations around the world. And so without that threat posed by the Soviet Union, there was a question of like, OK, well, what do we do with, with NATO now? And I think some would say it made sense for Western Europe and the United States to maintain some type of security relationship, whether that's in NATO or not in NATO. But then there's also this question of, well, you know, do we expand NATO? And at the time, there was a concern uh, with first Mikhail Gorbachev and then Boris Yeltsin about expanding NATO eastward and there were indicate and this is disputed by a, a lot of a lot of people but it's my opinion based on the history and research done by scholars that I respect that there were strong indications given to first the Soviets and then the Russians that it was not the intent of NATO to expand eastward um, but nonetheless NATO did expand and real quick I just want to put aside the the, the issue of whether or not that provoked Russia. I don't think that regardless of that, it was in the interest of the United States to do that. Again, we didn't face a threat from the Soviet Union. You had these wealthy and capable countries in Europe, Germany, France, the United Kingdom, Italy, Spain, Portugal, Belgium, uh, the Netherlands, Norway, Denmark, uh, that were more than capable of securing their own continent. 
But by maintaining NATO as it was and then expanding it, we sent a message to these European countries that, hey, we will continue to subsidize your defense and we disincentivized them from building their own capabilities and allowed them essentially to keep funding their welfare states at the at, at the expense of their um, military. So This is something that Trump was very good on. Yes, yeah. He, he very pointedly pointed that out to them. He, I think he deserves credit for, for pointing that out. But I, I think that, that even outside of the debate of whether or not this is NATO expansion was responsible for what happened with Ukraine, that's the most important point about NATO for Americans is that we do not need to play such a role and uh, such a big role in securing Europe because you have these wealthy and capable countries there. Now, fast forward um, to 2008 uh, under the Bush administration, there was a declaration made by um, – uh, by the United States and, and NATO members that there would be an open door for Ukraine and the country of Georgia to join NATO. Now, NATO was not united on this issue. There were countries within NATO that didn't um, want uh, Ukraine in there. Uh, Germany and France at various points and others had, had concerns about that. But nonetheless, the, the biggest country in NATO was saying that we want to keep an open door for Ukraine to join. And NATO was framed explicitly uh, by many, like Senator John McCain, for example, as an anti-Russia alliance. So you could see whether, you know, regardless of, of whether Vladimir Putin is authoritarian thug, which he is, how a country like Russia could have security concerns about an alliance like NATO being on its borders, which it already was in the Baltic states. And so we left that open door for Ukraine and for Georgia, which was shortly after that was actually invaded by by Russia. But on the issue of Ukraine specifically, um, we kept the door open to them and kept sending them signals that we would at one point allow them in the alliance, even though there really wasn't a, a a real plan or intention to allow them in. So you're signaling to the Russians that, we're, we're intending to expand this, even though we weren't serious about it. But you're also signaling to Ukrainians that, hey, Ukrainians, that, hey, you're now potentially part of our security umbrella. So to them, they thought, OK, we'll have the West backing. We have um, the backing of this Western alliance and we'll get their support. And so that also informed how they approach their security challenges. So while I, I, I think that you can't blame the current conflict completely on NATO expansion. Our policies in Eastern Europe, particularly around NATO and security commitments, obviously didn't deter Russia, but I think it's fair to say created more security concerns and a security dilemma for them. Yeah, so I've, I've personally spent a decent amount of time in Ukraine, specifically Kiev and some other places in Ukraine, um, in Tbilisi, Georgia, other places in Georgia, a lot, um, you know, a lot of those countries that that understandably feel uh, Lithuania yeah. understandably feel threatened by by Putin and and Russian expansionism. And I'm an economist. I'm not a foreign policy guy. So my advice was always um, pretty simple. Like you, you probably need to um, consider some pretty radical free market reforms so that you can be strong and some. And, and with that economic strength probably comes energy independence um, because that's a big part of this. Europe is, is so dependent on, on Russian energy yep. 
that they're they're conflicted and they're and that you know cut off the energy and you and you've you've created a lot of chaos for people um but one i learned from thomas massey he was on the show um i think you saw that episode and he pointed out just days before the ukrainian parliament eased up their their gun restrictions that you know the, the best way to defend your country is to be well armed and well trained um and and maybe that's part of the lesson here um, for Putin is that it, it does seem like uh, Ukrainians are fighting back. Yes, they are. And uh, they're, they're fighting um, valiantly. Um, I, I, I think that what has happened in Ukraine, I think one important lesson is, is that Russia, in a conventional sense, and I, I say conventional for a very important reason, and I'll explain in a second, is is not that big of a threat. They they have not they were not able to rapidly take over uh, at least the eastern part of Ukraine and accomplish their military objectives in a in a in a short timeline. Now they still have massive amounts of men and material and reserves. I mean, Russia is a country that still keeps World War II tanks and warehouses, um, and they keep old. Soviet T-55 and T-62 tanks that are 56 years old at this point. And so they have a tremendous reserve that they could throw in this fight. And in a war of attrition, while you can't say anything with certainty, you have to give the advantage to the Russians because of that. Um, but it, it shows that in a conventional sense, they, they can't threaten Poland. They can't threaten Central Europe and um, you know Germany and France in a meaningful way. The threat they pose is on the nuclear front and on the on the non-conventional asymmetric front. And so I think that's important to keep in mind is is a lot of folks are saying like, well, the Russians don't seem that that scary. You know, they're they're going to be back. Why can't NATO do more? It's like, well, because there's still the nuclear card. And that's the biggest risk here is that this could escalate into a nuclear conflict. And I think way too many people in Washington, D.C. are being too flippant and too dismissive of that. And again, I just would go back to who's going to pay the price for this is that an expanded war, whether it goes nuclear or gets more bloody in a conventional sense, the cost of that will be borne by the Ukrainian people primarily. And, and by the way, so like the, a specific example of that is I think there's just a lot of confusion and ignorance about what a call for a no fly zone actually means. And it's 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 different than something we would have done in Iraq when it comes to um, shooting down Russian planes. Yeah, we did it. We did have a no-fly zone in uh, Iraq for uh, 13 years. And you know what we were doing those 13 years? We were bombing the country. We weren't just flying uh, jets over their airspace. Um, we had to take out their air defense systems. And to properly impose a no-fly zone over Ukraine would require us bombing Russian air defense systems, not just in Ukraine, but also in Belarus and Russia because they have very long-range S-400, S-300 systems that are, are stationed in, in Russia and Belarus that would pose a threat to American or NATO aircraft. And for us to effectively manage no-fly zone would require bombing them. So I think that, that you and your viewers will understand what that entails. It means bombing Russia. Yeah. It doesn't just mean flying an F-22 in a circle around western Ukraine. And, you know, those bombs could easily fall in civilian areas. It could cause civilian casualties. 
it could lead to Russia then attacking um, NATO air bases, and that would lead to retaliation. And then you could see how we would get in what's called an escalatory spiral. And one thing leads to another, and you have an exchange of tactical nuclear weapons, which the United States still has in Europe. Yeah. Uh, and the Russians still have many of as well, too. And so that's a very dangerous proposal. And again, it's, it's something that people in Washington who should know better, and maybe they do, but maybe they don't, they're being way too flippant about. I mean, there's there's a political element to this. I can't help but notice um, the, the Biden administration almost seemed to encourage Putin to make a move. And, and that was just my non-expert uh, perspective. But but here we are. We're, we're, we are where we're at. Yeah. And, and the NATO stuff has happened. And the Biden administration has done what it's done. What is the, the realistic way of of avoiding world war three avoiding nuclear conflict um and and getting putin out of ukraine is is there yeah. a path i think the only realistic path uh to ending this conflict is through diplomacy is that you have to offer uh, putin off ramps and the uh, ukrainian government Zelensky, recognizes that since day one, there's been active negotiations uh, to end this conflict. And there, there, I don't see a viable military solution for either a Ukrainian victory or a Russian victory that does not involve uh, an escalation of the war, a, a growth of the war that, you know, potentially could pull in NATO or, you know, potentially lead to the exchange of unconventional weapons. Diplomacy diplomacy and diplomacy are the only options and so i think that's why it's good to see countries like israel trying to take the lead and i think they deserve credit for that and it's bizarre to see a lot of people criticizing them for trying to help um end this war including uh from so-called friends of of ukraine you know um a, a good friend of mine my predecessor in this role uh, uh, uh will ruger often says that Ukraine has some of the worst friends here in D.C. Yeah. Again, a lot of people that want to fight this war to the last Ukrainian, but that are pushing them to take actions that are only going to lead them down a bad path. And so, again, that's that's the only solution I see. And I think the Ukrainian government, for the most part, recognizes that. I think um, the Russian government knows that now, too. And the United States... I think that's the best role the United States could, could play is encouraging that diplomatic resolution. It seems like uh, Zelensky um, has realized, if he didn't know it all along, that um, you know the the promise of NATO-like protection isn't nearly as real as as we present it to be. Like we we really don't yeah. show up, and there's good reasons why we're not showing up. But it seems like an empty promise we made. It was an absolute empty promise. And you mentioned, you know, the Biden administration earlier is I think it was a huge mistake for the Biden administration. to Keep that door open. And this kind of got drowned out because of Afghanistan. But um, last year, you know, Secretary Austin, the current defense secretary, went to Eastern Europe and reaffirmed NATO's open door policy. And so that to Zelensky was a signal that, hey, the, the United States still supports this when 
within the alliance, there was still opposition to it and that there, it was not likely to happen. And you also, too, again, kind of building on a point about the, the, the signals the Biden administration sent is there was a lot of mixed messages. I think that President Biden himself, interestingly, had the most consistent message about, you know, this it's not in the United States' interest to get in a war with Russia over Ukraine. But then he, you had a secretary of state talking about our unwavering commitment to preserving Ukrainian and ter- territorial integrity. Well, if you think about what that means is that that's basically saying, hey, you have a we have a security commitment, but there was no treaty. There was no firm commitment. And so those mixed messages uh, did not help the situation at all and and did not um send the right signals both to the Ukrainian government and the Russian government. It's as if, um, you probably wouldn't say this because you're more polite, but it's as if, it, as if there is a permanent military industrial complex that keeps charging forward regardless of who the president is. I'm, I'm uh, surprised you think I'm polite about that. Yeah, it's, it's, it's abhorrent. I, you know, uh, there are a lot of good people uh, who work in foreign policy here in Washington and, and, um, even people that, that disagree with me. And I think there's some thoughtful people and I've learned a lot actually listening to people I disagree with, mm-hmm. but there is so much money in this town from foreign governments, from special interests affiliated with defense contractors. And that influences the positions people take. It's, it's impossible that it wouldn't. Yeah. And um, it definitely creates an incentive for people in a lot of institutions and in the government who want to go back and work at these institutions to take certain stands. And also, too, influences a lot of folks in the media because they go to these people for their as sources and for their information as well, too. So I've, I've talked to, to Kelly Vallejos about this numerous times, but even in I used to do a lot of TV. Um, I don't anymore because I find formats like this to be more more productive Um, but I used to end up as an economist having to opine on foreign policy views and I'm a a realist Uh, my instincts are very non-interventionist and I would I would go to the think tank industrial complex there's an industrial complex everywhere and and I couldn't get information Um, like I ended up doing Fox News Sunday having Mm -hmm. to be an expert on Syria which of course I wasn't um, so the emergence, and, and I, I feel like the Stand Together family has been a big part of this, the emergence of, of, of foreign policy think tanks and thinkers and, and advocates that actually um, challenge the conventional wisdom, mm-hmm. I think is essential. Like it's, it's, it's exciting to me because now I, now I can go find somebody that's a lot smarter than me and say, what, what's going on in Ukraine? So like... Um, Maybe maybe you could give people a sense for what some of those resources are because you're you're right at the sort of the middle of that yeah. network. Well, uh, fortunately, um, over the last uh, seven or eight years, um, there have been a lot of new institutions and programs established within the foreign policy community to help uh, create a alternative and alternative approaches to the status quo of the last 30 years. And you have a lot of great institutions, including some ones that that have been around for a a long time and really um, 
were holding the line in a lot of ways by themselves. And, and I think the top of the list is the Cato Foreign Policy Department. Mm-hmm. Um, they were one of the only places where you could reliably get good analysis about what was going on uh, with American foreign policy and were sounding alarm on, on issues like NATO expansion going back to the early 90s. They were one of the few institutions that consistently opposed the Iraq war. But fortunately, they're not alone now. You have um, the Quincy Institute, where Kelly Vallejos now works. You have um, some great programs at some more traditional uh, uh, think tanks, like the Atlanta Council, the New American Engagement Initiative, which is uh, headed up by Matt Burroughs and Chris Preble. Chris Preble is a naval officer, formerly worked at Cato, and you have Emma Ashford there now. Uh, Their program is fantastic. I would encourage everybody to read Emma's work in particular on Ukraine. Um, you have the Carnegie Endowment with, with Chris Chivas and Stephen Wertheim. Um, you have the Center for uh, the National Interest is another great institution. Um, there, there's now just such a, a diversity of, of, of organizations and, and, and individual scholars as well, too. You have more university centers that are, are now pro- producing academics and scholars that are willing to step up and challenge it. So. That, that's, I think, been a positive development. And, you know, President Trump, however imperfectly, too, helped shepherd, uh, you know, part of this realignment. And again, it was imperfect. There were mistakes made, but he, he was able to start moving things in a different direction. And I think even President Biden has recognized that. The problem is, though, is that a lot of people beneath both of them still were kind of part of this old way of thinking and this old foreign policy establishment. So there's still a lot of work to do. There's been a lot of progress made. And I have to say, too, it's been transpartisan is, you know, you see a lot of people coming together. We talked about, uh, you know, Bernie Sanders and Rand Paul earlier. But, you know, you see people like um, Annie Biggs and Barbara Lee coming together on issues of war powers. Uh, Peter Meyer and, and Ro Khanna coming together on the issue as well, too. Um, it's truly transpartisan, and and that's what it's going to take to push back on what has been a bipartisan failure over the last 30 years. Okay, final gotcha question. Um, I'm just half-joking. Bill Maher observed last week um, to his audience, which is a difficult thing to do, that that you have to notice the fact that for all of the accusations that, that Trump was in the pocket of Putin, Putin did not invade Ukraine during Trump's watch. Um, what's, what's your take? Um, was, uh, was, is the Biden administration um, an inevitable open door for Putin to make this move? Ooh, that's a that's a tough this one. This has to be speculative because yeah, we don't it, know. That's a tough one, and and you know this is. I'm glad you have this format because it, it's not something to be re- answered in a 30 second soundbite. You know, I'm I'm trying to keep it as concise as possible, but you know, there's this narrative that, as you said, you know, Trump was a Putin puppet. I think it's worth noting that Trump, under Trump, NATO expanded to two more countries. Uh, the country of Macedonia actually changed its name to North Macedonia so they could join NATO. You had Montenegro added as well, too. The open door was not shut. Um, Ukraine received lethal aid under the Trump administration for the first time. Uh, you still had deployments of American troops to Europe, and particularly eastward to Poland. Trump was skeptical of NATO, clearly. He did push them to spend more, and he did talk about withdrawing troops, but those policies never went into effect. 
Um, Biden, on the other hand, essentially continued and expanded on those policies. At the, it kind of got lost, and again, in a lot of coverage around Afghanistan, but early on in his administration, actually sent more troops to Europe and continued lethal aid and more loudly defended NATO. And so I think that the point is, is that it, it's hard just to blame this on Trump or, or, or Biden. It's 30 years of failure that led to this point, just like with Afghanistan. And um, yeah, I think the Biden administration deserves criticism for some of the things they, they did, particularly around, um, you know, sending those mixed signals. I think they deserve credit for resisting pressure to, to do direct military in, intervention. Uh, but, you know, I, I, I can't blame, you know, them exclusively for what happened here. I will say that, you know, it's important too to kind of step back from the American view of this and recognize that there are regional, you know, things at play and that, you know, the Ukrainians and Russians both were looking at this from their perspective, not necessarily from the American perspective. Yeah. And that Zelensky was taking actions and Putin was taking actions that led to this independent of the Americans. And and that's important to remember is that we don't have control over everything that happens in these countries, even if the perception is that we do. Cool. So if people want to uh, find your work and follow you, how do they do that? Sure. So um, you can follow me on Twitter at uh, Dan D. Caldwell. You can go to our website at www.standtogether.org. Uh, you could also go to Concerned Veterans for America, where I'm still a uh, senior advisor at www.cv4a.org. There's a lot of great resources on both websites. Um, also, too, you know, if you're interested in taking action or getting involved to help advance some of these policies, Concerned Veterans for America has an action center where you can uh, uh, email your members of Congress on these issues and other issues as well, too, like reforming the Department of Veterans Affairs, reforming the defense budget, getting our out-of-control spending uh, under control as well, too. So it's a great resource and really encourage your viewers and listeners to uh, go to both both places. Okay, I'll tweet that stuff out as well. And uh, this has been awesome. Let's do so, it yeah, again. Yeah, it's awesome. Love thank, to. Thank you, sir. Thanks. Thanks for watching. If you enjoyed that show, make sure that you like and subscribe. Click the little bell so that you get notifications. And if you consume this via podcast, go wherever you want to go. We're everywhere. Kibbe on Liberty. The revolution starts now.